0: Welcome to the City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Matt, for reading our scripture this morning. Uh, if you haven't done so, do do go ahead and open your Bible up to the Book of Jude. Go to Revelation and then go left. And if you did not receive one of these on the way in, this is our gift to you. Uh, this is an ESV Jude Journal. Also it includes First uh, and Second Peter. This is a great way for you to follow along. And so, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love uh, for you to have this. If you do have a Bible, we'd love for you to have this. And if there's a really neat section on the side where you can take notes right here in the in the in the section. So if you didn't get one last week, um, if you didn't get one, if you want one, just raise your hand and someone in the back will make sure that you get one of these. Uh, again, we're so glad that you're here today. If you've not uh, connected with us, if you're uh, if you're new with us and looking uh, to get more information, you didn't fill out that Connect card on the registration, uh, you can fill out that card at coahforesthills.org slash connect. And we would love to get to know you a little bit better, help connect you uh, to what's going on here at City on a Hill. Um, a, a little bit about us as a new church. Uh, we are a new church. We have uh, been gathering together in some form or fashion since September and uh, and began to gather together weekly in person at Easter. And so uh, we talk every single week about our values as a church. And the reason we do this is because we want to drill these three things into our heads uh, so that we remember them, because this is what forms us and shapes us. And those three values are the gospel, community and mission. The gospel is the good news that we were separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus, uh, out of God's kindness and mercy, came became a man lived the life we could never live, died the death we deserve on the cross to pay for our sins, and then rose again to new life so that we could have life in God. And so if you've not received that, we would love to talk with you about what that means. Secondly, community, we are made for relationship. That word is a compound word of common unity. We have a common confession that Jesus is Lord that unites us together, regardless of our ethnicity, our background, what we may have done. God invites us together as this new, beautiful, multicultural, multi-generational family, and we want to embody that as a church. And then lastly, mission, that the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. We want others to know of the hope that we have in Christ. Um, kiddos, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, you should have received a bag when you came in. There's a kids activity. Um, there's uh, some things that you can work with there. We'd love to see at the end of the service what, what you did with your, your little, with your, your project. We will have kids ministry coming back again in the future, um, but we're just so glad that you're uh, here with us today, kiddos. Um, um, a couple of things coming up. Uh, actually, right after the service, we are going to go to Johnson Park. If you don't know where that is, it is directly next door to the Green Street Tea Stop. So we encourage people to hang out together after the service. And we're just going to move off site and do that today. We're renting uh, for Forest Hills Covenant Church. We kind of want to get out of their way a little bit. And so at the park over there, there's a fenced-in area for kids to play. Um, so parents, throw your kids in there and you can't leave, but, you know, just throw your kids in there. And if you didn't bring lunch and you're hungry, uh, Evergreen Cafe is right next. Door, They have a wonderful food that you can grab, grab. So I really do encourage all of, as many of you who would like to come and be a part of that. And uh, then coming up this summer, we're going to take a break from our community groups at the end of May. We're going to have a couple week break. And then we're going to do something special for the summer. We're going to try to really prioritize building relationships. So we're going to have a men's study on Tuesday night, a women's study on Wednesday night. And then at the end of the month on Wednesdays, we're going to gather together as the whole church, do some discipleship with our kids, share a meal, and just really prioritize building friendship over the summer as we, uh, as we can now get outside. Hey, here's the cool thing. We're still work, working out what the details of this look like within our church, but man, a lot of the COVID protocols go away next week. So praise God. We're excited to see what this looks like this summer. All right, now when you were a kid, just like I used to be a kid, one of my favorite things I loved about being a kid is that like when you're sitting around with your friends and you ask these, would you do this or could you do this type of questions. questions? Like, and so one of my favorite questions as a kid was, could you last one round with Mike Tyson? Everybody know who Mike Tyson is. If you don't, think modern, think Ronda Rousey. So like, in in but in, in the cage, could you last one round? Not like would you be willing to, but could you go into the fight and actually make it one round? And so I imagine as a kid, it's like you know what? What I'm going to do is I'm just going to try not to die. So I would just run in circles and try to find figure out how to not get hit. And honestly, that's not a real good strategy, is it? Don't die is not a good strategy. Um, there, there would be no training. There'd be no game plan in order to survive this moment because either Mike Tyson or Ronda Rousey would eventually corner you and your life is over. It's, that's, it's it. Jude does not want us to go into the fight of our faith unprepared. He doesn't want us to go in with the hope that we just don't die or we don't make it or we don't survive. He actually writes this letter to prepare this unnamed church and to prepare us for the fight of faith, giving us all the tools that we need and the preparation that we need to contend for the faith. So last week, we looked at the idea of why we contend for the faith or why we contend for the glory of God. And we said that we do so because we want to make God's glory evident. We don't want in any way to distract from God's glory. And these false ideas and false teachings, which were threatening the church that Jude wrote to and can threaten our church often deflect from the glory of God. Secondly, we want to make the gospel clear. We want to make it very clear to our own lives and to our friends and neighbors that there is no hope outside of the finished work of Christ. And lastly, we want to protect the church. We want to protect one another from false ideas and false ideologies. And so we know why we do so, but we also need to know how we contend for the faith. How do we contend for the glory of God? When we say the word contend, it sounds like we're looking to pick a theological fight. That's not what I'm talking about. Contending for the faith is not about being right. It's not about winning an argument. But let me ask you this. If what we believe is true, that we are sinners separated from a holy God and that the only way to come back to him is through the finished work of Christ, then we have no greater need. Our hearts have no greater need. Our neighbors have no greater need than faith in Christ. And when you discover how valuable that is, there is, there is nothing worth fighting for more than that. There's a story of a woman in 2015 who took some scrap electronics down to a, a recycling center. And as the employees opened up the box, they noticed that there was an Apple One computer sitting inside that box. The lady didn't know what she had, and as they began to research, they realized that this is one of only 200 models ever made, and it was worth $200,000. If she had discovered what that was worth, she would have ran back down to the recycling center, beat on the door, and said, I made a massive mistake. When we discover how wonderful and how beautiful the name of Jesus is, how powerful the name of Jesus is, we realize there's nothing greater to cherish, nothing greater that we would defend. And we want to share it because we realize that anyone can get in on this. And the flip side of this, as I mentioned, is that this is news that if our neighbors and friends do not hear it, they will be separated from God for. Eternity. So what does it say when we are not able to give a defense and a contention for our faith? That we don't go and tell. And if it's true, and look, I know that we don't want to be contentious. We don't want to step on people's toes. We don't want to say that something's right and something's wrong. But if the gospel is true, then this is the best news ever. The most loving thing that we could do would be to contend for the glory of God in others' lives. And so church, I want us to be a people who cling to the gospel. I want us to be a people who apply the work of Christ to every area of our lives. That there's not a single square inch of our lives that is not touched by the redeeming work of Christ. That we realize that there's nothing worth, there's nothing that's not worth giving because Jesus gave everything for us. And this radically reorients our lives to Jesus and to his kingdom. So we know the why. We know that this is important because God is glorious and good. So we need to look at how. Jude gives us three words that tell us how to contend for God's glory. And the first we see from the text this morning is remember. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word remember is written to a group of people. Now, a note about this passage, and honestly, most of the New Testament letters, they were not written to individuals. Outside of a few letters like the, the pastoral epistles, like First and Second Timothy, Titus, um, uh, Philemon, those were letters written to individuals. The grand majority of the New Testament letters were written to communities. They're written to communities of faith. They're written to churches, and they were written to the plural you. In English, we don't really have a plural you. Look, Southerners don't get much right about the English language. We get that one right. This is the word y'all, you all. We got one word right in the English language. This is written to, but y'all must remember. So that with your best Greek Southern accent, y'all must remember. And this is vital for us to remember because yes, we need to remember personally The work of Christ. We need to rehearse the gospel daily, but we also need to do this together as the church. See, when we make our faith solely about an individual experience with God, what ends up happening? It puts us at the center. It puts us at the center because it all becomes about how do I grow? How do I enjoy? How am I experiencing church on a Sunday morning? And so remembering simply becomes, I need to remember these things in order to get the most out of the Christian life. But if we remember together, why is this so important? Because we tend to forget. I'm extremely forgetful, extremely forgetful. I said calendar reminders for calendar reminders because I just forget things. And I know that you're probably a lot like me. We tend to forget. We tend to forget that the work on the cross is actually finished. We tend to forget that we're received sons and daughters of God. We forget these things. And when I forget, I need you to remind me. And you need me to remind you. It's it's so easy for us to forget. And this is why we gather together each Sunday morning to remember the work of Christ, to remember what Christ has done, to remember that his name is that beautiful and that wonderful and that powerful, that we're reminded of God's past faithfulness in order to give us present faith with a future hope. We need to be reminded, I believe that's the primary reason that we gather together in community because when we see someone else doing something that's out of step with the gospel or thinking or starting to venture towards error or acting in a way that doesn't represent Christ, we need to gently step in and say, you know what, I think you're forgetting your hope. I think you're I think you forgetting that you're fully and perfectly loved by Jesus and only he can satisfy you. I think you're forgetting who you are in Christ. So we need to remember together, but what we remember is so important. So we see here, remember beloved, that word. We're not going to get past that. We're not going to get over that. I can't state this enough. He called us, Jude called the church the beloved in in verse one, called us beloved again in chapter three, went on this diatribe about false teachers and then came back and says, beloved, those loved and cherished and delighted in by God. We can't hear that enough. We cannot hear enough that we are loved by God, that God is, does not only love us, but he calls us his beloved, which means he is committed to us. He is in a committed relationship with us, that it's not based on our performance, that God's love for us does not go up or down based on the, the uh, kind of unseen balance of good and bad in our lives each day. That his love for us is not determined determined by our circumstances. That when things are going bad, he doesn't love us. And when things are going good, he does. But we begin to see everything in light of the fact that he loves us. That the Lord loves those that he disciplines. That the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. That we are loved with permanency and commitment and an other-centeredness that Jesus would give his life for us. But we also need to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. The predictions of the apostles, we can see this as the apostles teaching. This is what Jude was talking about back in verse 3 when he talked about our common salvation or about the, uh, about the, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So this is what he is reminding us of. We're reminded of the gospel, what happens when you begin to forget the gospel? When you forget that Christ did all the work, you just start working. I need to do, we feel restless. I gotta do something to make myself lovable. When you forget that God forgives sins, you don't run to him as a good father who would receive you, but you hide from him just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. When you forget that you're enough because Christ is enough for you, you try to prove yourself. When you forget you're safe, you're worried and racked with anxiety. To be gospel-centered is not just knowing the gospel, but it's remembering and applying the gospel to all of life. But also we see that these predictions are about warnings. There's a warning. Now, a little about about this title of apostle. In the Bible, there there are kind of big A apostles and little A apostles. The big A apostles were those who Jesus revealed himself to and sent as the basically the ones given the keys of the church in order to uh, make Jesus known. They were the ones who wrote the New Testament. We do not believe that there are big A apostles anymore. Now, there are little a apostles, and we'll unpack some of this when we go through Ephesians in the fall, who are those who have an apostolic gifting, those who take the gospel to new places. These would be people who are missionaries and church planters. They're gifted apostolically. It doesn't mean that they are an apostle. And so here, these apostles are giving warnings. And their predictions are given to the readers and to us for a couple of reasons. One is don't be surprised when you see this stuff. Look, the world's crazy, right? Just can I get a name in on that? Like the world's crazy. Don't be surprised by it. Sometimes the church is crazy, and some some people weave their way in who are going to try to take our hope away from Jesus. Don't be surprised by it. And the last time there will be scoffers. You know what a scoffer is? Somebody who's like, Pff. you know the sound, right? Pff. I can't do this, COVID. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm vaccinated. I'm not sending it towards you, I promise. Um, but that's the sound of someone who scoffs, someone who sees through everything, someone who mocks following ungodly passions. Don't be surprised when you see this. I know that there's this fear that Christianity is, in, is, in, is threatened in America. Well, there's a couple things there. Number one, it's not. If you look at statistics, Christianity is actually growing among Orthodox, faithful, Bible believing churches. Here's the other thing. America and Christianity aren't synonymous. You look around the world, the Christian church is growing in places like Asia and Africa and South America and in the Middle East where there's oppression and persecution. The gospel is flourishing. Don't be surprised by this stuff. Also, he tells us these things so we see the world rightly. So we see our lives rightly. He says, in the last times. He's saying, when you see these things happening, you're in the last times. Well, guess what's happening? These things. So what are they in? The last times. Now, I think, I know when we hear the words last times, we imagine like hellfire, brimstone, The Walking Dead, Mad Max. Like, that's what we think of. But really, the last times are not meant to scare us, but they're meant to give us hope in the coming kingdom of Christ, that Jesus is reigning right now and that one day the king will come and consummate his kingdom. And he's saying that while you're in the middle of this and you see all of these things, don't lose hope. Wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 21, that leads to eternal life. There will be hope at the end of this don't lose heart. If you ever read the Lord of the Rings or watched the movie, sometimes they don't always line up. But there's actually one line, and Matt's going to kill me when I say this, that I think that the movie gets better than the books. Arrows are flying my way now from an elf in the, never mind. Um, and so there's this one scene where they're, they're, they're at Helm's Deep, uh, the, the kingdom of Rohan. There, there's, uh, there's wave after wave of orcs who are coming. And Gandalf, who's like, the best. He's their only hope. He leaves. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute, where are you going? And he says, look to my coming at first light on the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. And as things got dark and as things got scary and it seemed like all hope was lost, all of a sudden light came on the horizon. For us as followers of Jesus, no matter how crazy things may get, we look to the day when the light comes. And that gives us hope that we don't lose heart. We have confidence to face today because we remember that Jesus wins in the end. So what do you need to remember? Do you need to remember that God is, is great, that he is, he is so glorious that you don't have to fear, that he is good to us and satisfies our souls, or that he is gracious when we sin? Second word is keep. So remember, but secondly, keep, verse Twenty, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in, the, in the, your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, if you remember back to week one, this sounds like a bit of a contradiction. Week one, we said that God keeps us. God's the one who calls, the one who keeps, the one who loves. But here it says that you need to keep yourself in the love of God. What, what, what does this mean? What do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? We need to press in. Because maybe it's, it's not a problem. Maybe it's not contradicting itself. Maybe we just don't quite understand it. The best advice I can give you for reading the Bible is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So the picture we have here is that God is the one who ultimately keeps us. He's sovereign, but we're also still responsible to believe. Let's not, let's not make that too difficult. God is sovereign, we're responsible. God saves, we place our faith in him. God saves and we persevere in that faith. And so here, God is the one who ultimately keeps us and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we keep ourselves in the love of God. God's ultimately the one who keeps us. It's almost like a child learning to swim And when you're a little kid learning to swim, your parents hold their hands under your midsection as you flail and you swim and you try and you try. And sometimes you let go and you're like, I'm just I'm done. I'm tired. But your parents are still holding you up. It's the exact same picture that we are held and kept by Christ as we persevere in the faith. Now, this doesn't mean that God keeps you and you keep yourself saved. We're not talking about justification being made right with God. We're talking about the result and the fruit of being made right with God. As Dallas Willard says, and I've said this once, I'll say it again, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. We're not earning our salvation. We're not keeping the love of God by earning it. We're just resting in the love of God. See, the result of Jesus changing you is a changed life, the evidence of a new heart, the evidence of new affections and new desires and a new Lord in your life. So keeping yourself in the love of God is taking God on his word that he actually loves you and wants you. And being in the love of God is not like keeping yourself in God's good graces that if I do well, God loves me. And then if I don't, he stops. He stops. But how you persevere and how you grow closer, how you contend for the faith is by reveling in the love of God for you. This is how we see sin expunged from our lives. Charles Spurgeon says, when the love of God is shed abroad in the heart, the idols will soon depart and the love of sin will take its flight. This is what it means to follow Jesus, that we return again and again to the promises that God loves us and that there's nothing else that we'll ever need. And when we see the love of the Father, we long for the love of the Father. First John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. In the next words, and so we are. Let's say that together. And so we are. See, to keep yourself in God's love means that we never get over the fact that we are God's. That we belong to him. Think about think back on this. Every sin that you've ever committed, he's forgiven. Every hurt that you've experienced, he has been there. Every joy he has given you, every victory was won by him. Every valley he tread it before you. Every sorrow he bears it with you. Every hope is ultimately realized in him. So keep ourselves in the love of God. And Jude gives us three ways that we can do this, three ways that we keep ourselves there. The word keep is the imperative, which is just a fancy word for command. This is the command. And these other three words kind of flow out of that. They kind of modify what it means to keep ourselves there. These are the words building, praying, and waiting. Say this with me, building, praying, waiting building yourselves up. He says, again, he calls us beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. We build ourselves up in that. Again, this is not a solo venture. We do this together. This is how we keep ourselves. Peter H. David says, what is clear is that this building is collective. It is not that the individual follower of Jesus is to build himself or herself up, but that the followers of Jesus are to build the community of Jesus up. Look, we don't go alone. We move as a unit. If you've ever seen the movie Three Hundred, which is about is a fictionalized telling of the three hundred Spartans who stood against the Persian army, it it details this scene where they kind of make this turtle shell with their shields, their shields, and they say that they not only protect themselves but they protect the man on their left and the man on their right. We build ourselves up together in this way as our faith helps encourage others' faith. And notice the difference in this, in this visual versus verse 19, where it says that these scoffers, these people who follow ungodly passions, are the ones who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Holy Spirit. What was Jesus' prayer in John 17? That we and the Father would be one, and that we would be one with one another oneness and unity with each other. And here's the the reality. When we think that Christianity is a solo venture, we're defying Jesus. When we don't prioritize community, when we prioritize ourselves over the unity that we have in Christ, we are defying Jesus's greatest desire for us. Together, we build up what? We're built up in our most holy faith. You It doesn't matter how good the building materials are. It doesn't matter if it's an, it's an $11 two-by-four, the way lumber's going up right now. It doesn't matter how good it is. If it's not built on a firm foundation, that house will fall. What is our firm foundation? Jesus. Ephesians 2 built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As a city on a hill, as a new church, it is going to be easy for us to build our foundation on something else something other than Jesus. But if we do that both either personally or corporately, it will fall. Secondly, praying in the Holy Spirit. This simply means being spirit-led or spirit-guided in our prayers. This isn't just experiential intensity when we pray, and it can be. God, God, praise God if it is. But this is submitting to God, saying, God, your will alone, your glory alone. And that is the key. Why is that the key? love what Jackie o Perry says. She says, prayer is a struggle for all Christians because dependence is a struggle for all people. Can all the people say amen? Nobody likes that one, I know. It's hard for us to pray simply because it's hard for us to remember how much we need God. This is how you know you're praying in the spirit. You pray until your heart is shaped to say your will be done. Your kingdom come. And I don't believe you're done praying until you can say that. So we pray, we, we build ourselves up, we also wait. Look, I, I'm not ai am not a patient person. I get impatient when the Pop-Tart doesn't come out of the, the toaster fast enough. Like I, I understand, like none of us like to wait. And if you remember in week one, it says, I remember we said we, we have mercy, we're receiving mercy. And here it says that we will receive mercy. We have the hope of mercy to come. And so why do we wait for something? Because we know that what's happening now is not as good as what's to come. Imagine you're driving home and you see the golden arches and they're beckoning you. You can smell the fries. And you're like, I just want some fries and a Big Mac and a apple pie, whatever your whatever your drug is there. You see that and then you say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. We need to go home. Because why do we need to go home? We have food at home. You're trying to make a good choice. You're saying in that moment, I believe it's better for me to delay satisfaction now for saving money by going home. Some of you are like, "Nope, apple pie, let's go." Um, but why do we wait? We wait because we know that there's something better. We wait because he who began a good work in us is faithful and just. To complete it, There's a day coming when mercy will come, where there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin, and we'll get to experience the love of God forever, which means that in the moment, all the stuff that we're facing right now is worth it for the mercy that we're going to get with Jesus in eternity. The last word we see here is apply. Now, I know that word apply is not in the text, but if you look at verses 22 and 23, that is the application of everything we just talked about. New Testament letters have a particular flow. Uh, when you look at them, they start out with who God is and, and, and what God's done for us. And then they very quickly shift toward how do we live this out for the good of others, which really is the greatest two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying, how do we apply everything we just heard to others? And he does so in this context by saying, have mercy on those who doubt, and we actually see three scenarios here when it comes to doubt. And they actually tell us that we approach doubt differently. It's not a one-size-fits-all thing, but we approach all three scenarios with mercy. Verse 22 is kind of just general doubt. This, that word doubt means literally at war with oneself. And this is the type of doubt that we would describe as unsettled belief. Maybe there's just, it's not that the person stopped believing, But they just you're kind of on the struggle bus. It's just there's some sort of doctrine that you're having a hard time wrapping your head around. It might be ethical issues like sexuality and gender, and you're like, I don't know that I'm I don't know that I'm I don't believe what the Bible says. I'm just struggling to believe what the Bible says. I'm struggling to believe what the Bible's that the Bible's an error. Whatever it might be, these are just general, unsettled doubts even when someone wants to believe. although what Flannery O'Connor, the great poet and author said. She said, I think there's no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. And what Jude says is that we need to have mercy on those who doubt. That's honestly not my first inclination. I'm like, the Bible says, that's what we want to say, right? The Bible's clear. But there are times when we just doubt. And I want us to notice how Jesus met doubters. How did Jesus meet Thomas? He met him with gentleness and correction. He met him with his presence as he drew toward Thomas and said, touch my hands and touch my feet. Try me. This is why if you're doubting, being in a community group is a really good place for you. And so if you're struggling, there are people who will work out these things with you. Jude understands this because he was a doubter and like Like Jude, Philander O'Connor said that our doubts can actually deepen our faith when they're worked out in community. There's a whole other group of people we got to snatch from the fire. Imagine snatching is when you're about to do something wrong and your mom grabbed you by the back of the collar and yanked you back. That is the visual of snatching. This is someone who's not struggling, but this is someone who's gone off into settled unbelief, hard-heartedness. And the reason it's used this way because this is someone who's playing with fire. There's a big difference between a child eyeing the road and the way that you would approach them and a child who's running headlong toward the road. You go grab that child and you yank them out of the road. We need to understand that all the doubts and all the false doctrines that we could run off into, they are not new. Every blog post you read or book that has an alternative viewpoint are not new. These are old Heresies and false ideas and, and errors that have just been repackaged in a new in a new in a new look. And the reason that he uses the word fire is because if we continue off into error and deny the gospel, what what is ahead for us is eternal punishment. And it's loving of us to go and grab someone from that fire. The last category is a group of. It's really a warning for us. It says there are others who you need to show mercy with fear, which means you need to have some boundaries. What's meant by this is that we're going to step in as, as gospel people. We're going to step into some messy situations, some broken places with the hope of Jesus. And what's being told us here is don't lose the gospel while you do so. Hating even the garments stained by the flesh. It's going to be easy for us as we step into broken places, as we work with marginalized and oppressed people, it's going to be easy for us to lose sight that our hope is in Jesus. Be careful. And if you're doubting this morning, maybe you're doubting, you're like, you're just exploring, you're like, I don't even know about this whole Jesus thing. Let me tell you this, doubt is faith. When you doubt, you are placing your faith in your doubts. What you're saying when you doubt is that I trust my uncertainty more than the fact that something could be certain. But here's why we are certain about what Jesus has done for us is that Jesus came to us. That Jesus came into human history, that he took on flesh. And then in fact, the gospel, the, the Christian message is the most verifiable thing in the world. You can verify whether it's true or whether it's false because Jesus came and he died on a cross for us and he rose again. We don't have to wonder. And Jesus meets you there in those doubts with himself. So as we close three questions, what do you need to remember? What do you need to remember? Secondly, how do you need to grow? Where do you need to see your faith built up? And then, thirdly, if you've not done so, have you given your life to Jesus? If you've not, we would love to talk with you. I'm going to be in the back at the end of the service. We'd love to talk with you about what it looks like to have a relationship with Christ. Let's pray.